This is Eleanor speaking. Welcome to episode 7 of the Evil Podcast, a podcast where founders get to share their stories for how they got an idea to making a profitable business. We hope this podcast will enable aspiring entrepreneurs to find inspiration and tips to get started. Today, I welcome David Zamarin, founder and CEO of Detrabel. Hi, David. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on board. How are you feeling today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Excited. I'm going to be traveling to a few countries in Europe by the end of the week. So getting ready for that. What are you going to be doing? Work, lots of work or? No, this is actually a, one, a, a true vacation. I'm not working. Well, I'll definitely be working on there, but it's not meant to be work. <laughs> I guarantee I will be working, but it wasn't meant to be work. That's for sure. So before we, we get to what you're doing on your daily basis and also on your holidays, apparently, can you, can you tell me a bit about your background, like um, educational and professional background? Sure. So um, education-wise, um, I went to, for my undergrad program, I graduated a year early in 2019, um, but I went to Babson College, which is the number one school for entrepreneurship in the world. Um, Chose to go there as opposed to a few other schools. I was admitted to several different um, uh, universities that I thought I was going to go to my whole life, but got a great offer at Babson. It was a full ride, full scholarship. Um, and it just made a lot of sense because for me, I, I knew that I wanted to continue being an entrepreneur. And the faculty at Babson gave me really good advice that if I went to Babson as opposed to some of the other schools I was considering um, some of which were Ivy Leagues, I would have been a star at Babson, whereas at somewhere like a, like a Harvard or a Penn or something like that, uh, I would just be one of the crowd. And so eventually when I was choosing the schools, um, Babson was originally my, Babs- my backup college, but I, um, I chose it as my, as my first option. And then professionally, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm the CEO and founder of the company that I run currently, which is Detropel. I've done numerous businesses before I've had failures and had exits successfully. Um, so it's, it's been all around, but I originally started, I'm, I'm 24 years old now. Um, I originally started Detropel when I was 15 years old, uh, which is a chemical manufacturing company uh, or a materials company. And so back then I didn't have really any experience in chemicals. Now I certainly have a lot more. Um, but you know, some people would see my background as both a technical background in chemicals, um, but also, um, it, you know, primarily in business, which is what I would say it mostly is. Yeah, there was something quite interesting to see in your background. Although I must say, the most impressive is that you applied to seven universities. When you see how annoying, tedious the process can be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So yes, yeah, so you have this background both in polymer chemistry and entrepreneurship. It's quite quite interesting. Did you think like quite early on you had this this tweak for entrepreneurship, or how did you get started in that business actually? Yeah. So I mean, I always was entrepreneurial as a kid. I I grew up in a low-income background. My bo- both my parents are immigrants to the States. And, um, you know, when I was two, they got divorced. And as a result, uh, you know, I was kind of forced to live with my grandparents because my mom was working 17-hour shifts while my dad, uh, you know, had partial custody. And as a result, I didn't really see him as often. And ultimately, I think growing up and seeing my mother struggle so hard uh, and then giving given this really unique background with my dad who was in business my whole life. And he would literally, you know, like my, my summer was consisting of going to the office, his office when I was visiting him for the week. Um, 
and at the time, you know, sometimes I thought it was boring, but other times I thought it was really fun actually, because I was always working on something or, or doing something. And so I had this really interesting dichotomy of my dad who constantly pushed business. And that's, you know, what he pretty much taught me to be was, a, was to go into business. And then my mom's side of the family and my grandparents included, who had an incredible focus on, on education. So education was a massive part of my life, um, still is to this day in different forms. But they were very, very critical uh, among going into a profession. They, you know, I was groomed to be a lawyer my whole life. I thought I was going to be an attorney uh, up until the 10th grade. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just, I was always pushed in education. So it was just this interesting dichotomy. But ultimately, I, you know, I saw my mom struggle so hard that I knew that I wanted to be independent. And so from an early age, I was always entrepreneurial. My grandparents would, like, for example, my grandma would, um, freeze like random popsicles that I would then, I was supposed to be giving out to my friends at our apartment, apartment complex, but I never did. I sold them for like 25 cents a piece. <laughs> and, you know, to me, I just, I always wanted to have this sense of independence. And so when I, when I was in fifth grade, actually, I asked my dad for a hundred dollar loan to start my first quote unquote business, which at the time was a, I was buying and then selling the Beats headphones and G-Shock watches, which were really popular back then. Um, this was probably like 2007-ish time. So right around the time that Facebook started doing Facebook groups and people started doing buy-sell trade groups on Facebook. And that's essentially how I made, I took a $100 loan and over the summer um, doing social selling as well as selling at flea markets, I made $10,000 in one summer, which to me at the time was an insane amount of money because I had never seen anything like that before. And so I fell in love with business. And and from there, I, I also was admitted into my middle school in sixth grade, which was a public school, but a magnet school that you had to test to get into. And it's one, it's top seven in the country. Um, and so I was admitted and I didn't, you know, I didn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily unique or novel to me at the time because I didn't grasp the magnitude of you know, that school, what that really was. Um, and so once eventually, you know, a few years later, I was investing in other ideas with my friends and so on and so forth. And I lost all the money by freshman year of high school. And by freshman year of high school, I was applying to now the high school that I went to, which was, it's very, very, very competitive. Um, out of a million kids in the school district of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from, only a hundred kids per grade were admitted to uh, my high school, which was called Masterman. And I applied for it again, because uh, you had to do so from middle school to high school. And after applying for it, I got in. And once I got in, I looked at all my peers and I said, I mean, everyone here is a certified genius. Like these are all like rocket scientists. And I'm not really that special, to be honest. I, I, I'm a good student. I care about my grades. I'm a great athlete. You know, I, I'm unique in some ways, but on paper, my peers and I are almost all identical. We all do, you know, 12 different clubs. We're all doing like robotics or something else. Everyone was interesting. The only difference was that everyone was, to me at least, more interesting than I was on paper. And I also, I, I'm probably the only kid that didn't play a musical instrument because um, I was not, I am not musically gifted at all. <laughs> um, I'm being a little facetious, of course. But my point is that a lot of my peers were, were very, very, very elite. And when I noticed that, I figured to myself, well, if I was this nervous about going to high school, how is it going to be when I go to college? And so I started thinking outside the box. And luckily, one of the classes I was taking for Spanish 
had a flyer that was posted for a program that had nothing to do with the school. It was actually held outside of class. It had nothing to do with school at all. And it was a youth entrepreneurship program whose tagline was start something real. And it was held at a venture capital firm in Philadelphia, one of the largest actually in the U.S. Um, and so I applied for that. I was the only non-senior in high school to get in. I was a freshman in high school. But I got into that program. I don't know why they picked me, but I was one of the 20 kids that was selected. And I just took it super serious. I took it more serious than everyone else. I went to every meeting. I took every single mentor's card. And my idea at the time was I was interested in uh, my sneakers. I was a sneakerhead and I got a pair of Jordans as a gift. I got $200 from my grandparents for getting into Masterman High School. And I combined that with my own $200 and I bought two pairs of Jordans at the time, which at 400 bucks for shoes is insane. I mean, that's like, that's crazy money to me, at least still to this day. I, I'm, I'm always surprised to see how expensive some luxury items are um, and Jordans in particular. And so I, I bought my first two pairs and I noticed how crucial I was about getting them, about keeping them clean. I really hated getting them dirty. And so my problem when they told us at the Youth Entrepreneurship Program to, to find a solution to an existing problem that I have every day, and that would be my business, my problem was getting my shoes dirty. And so I wanted to come up with a film that could be peeled off whenever it got dirty, but I knew nothing about chemistry, as I said before. And so the mentors recommended that I pivot the business to a local university, or sorry, to a shoe cleaning business, to which then I pivoted further and cleaned shoes for local university sports teams on a subscription model. And so I ran that business for about like six months or so. And I was doing really, really well. It was really successful. I was making about 25K a month in revenue. I was alone in the business, 90 something percent margins. It was just a really, really great experience. Again, most amount of money I had ever seen at that point, but I really wasn't passionate about it. And so six months into it, I got very fortunate. I got the opportunity to sell the business. And so I did it. I, I took the opportunity. I had an exit. It was a small exit. It was six figures, but 150 grand. But to me, at 15 years old, 150 grand, especially coming from nothing, that was the most amount of money I, I had ever, ever even heard of. Like I didn't even think it was possible to have that kind of to have that kind of cash around. Um, and so, fortunately, because my parents are very strict, uh, I wasn't allowed to spend the money really. And instead, I had to invest it. And so to me, the, the number one investment at the time was after selling the business that summer, as I was going into my sophomore year of high school, I started researching nanotechnology because a competitor product of Detropel, which I was trying to use for my previous business, was unavailable. And it took six months to get to me, cost $1,600 for a little court. Um, and it was incredibly carcinogenic. You had to buy a full bodysuit and a respirator mask to apply it. And so with all of that, I started asking really stupid and naive questions about like, why can't I make some kind of spray or coating like this product that you could spray on anything and then it would repel liquid-based substances, but without any of the harmful chemistries that make it carcinogenic. And so that's how I started the research on Detropel the summer of my sophomore year, at which point in time I started taking chemistry classes both in high school and because of my amazing high school masterman, we had this crazy program where if you qualified, which everyone in my school pretty much did, you were allowed to take classes as a part-time undergraduate student at the University of Pennsylvania while in high school. So in the evenings, I would take classes at Penn. Um, and for three years, I took classes in polymer chemistry, uh, polymer chemistry as well as economics and, and a few other things as well. And so that's how my journey began in, in the chemical world. Very, very impressive, I must say. What I really like was, as you, you mentioned, you didn't feel necessarily that 
you were standing out compared to your peers, but she probably you were as a entrepreneur genius. I mean, we can see how your mind works. You know, you see a problem and you <laughs> want to fix it, and then you think, okay, how do we make money? And yeah, Marcel and I we think 150k at 15 years old. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> Even at 25, it is still a lot, especially with the current economical situations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So how did it go after this? So you you obviously had that idea, then you got those classes. Can you can you walk us through the next steps? Like, did you want to register right away as a business again, or what happened next? Yeah, I mean, I I was interested in pursuing this business because I thought it was the most scalable part. I didn't like, I wasn't passionate about the shoe cleaning business because I figured, well, I was 15, I couldn't even drive yet. How is this going to scale beyond $25,000 a month? And eventually I I realized that this was my ticket to doing that. I wanted to scale this business and it was going to be possible. And so initially it started as a spray that could be sprayed onto textiles. Um, And I had this vision that I could always sell to manufacturers and textiles. But I also wanted to start with consumers so that I could get some initial cash flow and get some branding in place along with PR. And so I started doing that, uh, started you know, uh, advertising the business. And in February of 2014, so I was already 16 years old at that point, um, it was my sophomore year in high school, and I, I had launched the business publicly. Um, I hadn't been working on it since the summer, but I had officially launched the, the MVP, the, the first product that we had developed um, after paying for quite a bit of R&D work. Um, but then, you know, the business required additional scale-up, and we realized that we had a significant challenge on our hands, which was anything beyond five-gallon batches, I wasn't able to make. And we didn't understand why at first, but it later turned out, five years later, I, I ended up doing R&D for five years without making any progress, pretty much. Um, and that was both internal R and D like myself and then outside labs that we paid as well. Um, and so actually we didn't pay them. We contracted them. They never finished the work. So we never paid them. Um, which was interesting. I'm, I'm happy to dive into that on how to structure contracts properly when you, especially when you're young and you can use that to your advantage. But, um, for me, what I ended up doing was, you know, for five years, we ended up focusing on, uh, pitch competitions, getting PR, getting the brand in place. But the R and D was always missing, and so eventually, five years into it, there was a there was a point in time where there was an inflection point, and we just couldn't scale up, and we needed to because otherwise, you know, we couldn't make five gallon batches all the time. It just it was unrealistic to spend half a day making that, and that's all you would be able to produce. Um, it was just not realistic, and so there was an inflection point where I literally told myself, "This is my freshman year, my actually like a month and a half into my undergrad program," I told myself that if I didn't rewrite the entire business plan and figure it out by winter break in about three months, that I would quit the entire company. I, w- I would just fold the business. And you know, this is after people already thought I was an overnight success because at this point, we had like six figures in sales, all consumer. I, the company was doing fine. It's just internally, I knew that it could be so much more and I wasn't able to get there. And I was willing to finally pull the plug after five years of working on it, or maybe it was four years of working on it. Um, at that no, actually, sorry. At that point, it was already. Uh, it was like four, three and a half to four years, and so, you know, at that point, I decided once I once we did redo the business plan and, and we realized, uh, I realized that there was still um, something to be had here. I started looking at bringing in uh, different R and D resources 
and so on and so forth. And so we started tackling that challenge. And then eventually, um, you know, just like eight months later or so, we had gotten accepted to Shark Tank in the US. And after filming on Shark Tank, uh, which was in 2017, we filmed in September of 2017. And then the episode aired in January of 2018. And, you know, everyone knows if they watch the episode, I, I appeared to get deals from five out of the, sorry, four out of the five sharks, which I take, I take a deal with two sharks. Um, but what ends up happening is the deal does not close. And in January, the episode airs and the episode is so successful. We had one of the highest rated episodes of the season, um, that we end up making like 300 K pretty much 300 K almost overnight, just on our website alone after the episode airs. And that gives us the money to start really pushing uh, the business and, and bringing a lot of functions in house and moving from like a hobby or a business with college kids to a full scale company. And so once we got that revenue and we were, you know, once we pretty much hit the half a million mark, uh, in one year, or I guess in that, in that point, it was like half a year that it took us to get there. Uh, if not less, that's when I realized, okay, we've got to make some serious changes, bring some real expertise in here because it cannot just be college kids anymore. And so I ended up hiring my first full-time employees. There was a CFO in place because I was horrible with the with the accounting. Um, then we we brought on um, someone who had experience who was my COO for a few years. And then eventually we also at the same time, that year we grew significantly. And that year we also brought in R&D in-house. So we hired our full, first full-time chemical engineer in-house. We brought everything um, to our own facilities in Massachusetts where we're based out of. We brought all the R&D into our own you know, under one roof in our, and with our own people. And from there, we just, we just pretty much had this opportunity to really start dictating how we wanted things to progress. And eventually we, we hired our, our CTO and another chemist and so on and so forth. So eventually we did figure out the R and D issue. And, and it turned out that not only was the chemistry super unique, uh, and one of a kind and still is to this day, but also we built a technology platform, which is actually what enables us to make some of these chemistries um, and make them so uniquely. Otherwise, they wouldn't be possible. And that's actually one thing I was wondering. I was like, you, you took such time to actually recruit pe- people who had experience in chemical chemistry or, you know, material science. I'm a material scientist myself, so <laughs> I would be quite, you know, nerved to not have a specialist with me. Do you believe that was... A mistake that you made, or if you were to start a business and something completely different, you do the R and D yourself again to start with to make sure that you have really a vision of what you're doing, and then only if you see that you're stalling, you would recruit somebody in R and D. No, no, I think it's it's critical if you're not a technical person, or if you're not technical enough, or if you need assistance in any area, not just R and D. You absolutely should be hiring for it immediately, as as quick as you can, or finding co-founders. My problem was that I was trying to do that the entire time. I wasn't trying to do things on my own. Um, I was trying to hire co-founders or other people in the company, but we didn't have money to pay reasonable you know, salaries for a full-time you know, material scientist. Um, and on the same token, everyone who I pitched to become a co-founder was also you know, relatively close to my age. I mean, they were all older. They were all in undergrad while I was in high school and so on and so forth. Some of them were postdocs. But all of them had full-time jobs, right? And so they couldn't really dedicate the time or the resources to really make it work. And so it's not like it wasn't a lack of effort. I mean, I certainly could have done 
more I, I, looking back at it, you know, my hiring efforts back then were non-existent compared to how we would hire today, but I didn't know better. Right. And so, and so that's, that's what it really came down to. I would absolutely recommend hiring technical expertise that you need as quick as possible. Yeah, that's, that's what I would think. <laughs> but sometimes yeah, you don't have a choice as you, as you mentioned, although I would, ex- I would, uh, say, I would expect if you did uh, accelerator programs, actually be put in touch with people who could help you. Was that not the case? Or were they not relevant people? Were they just not matching the team? Yeah, um, I was in a ton of accelerator programs. I, I did two a year for like almost nine years in a row. Um, <laughs> literally like this. Enthusiast. <laughs> yeah, th- this past year is like the last time I've... I've um, yeah, probably not going to do accelerators for a while now unless they're super technical focused. But no, I think, you know, I think the accelerators had limited resources, right? Most of the accelerators are business focused. They don't, they're not necessarily deep tech or technology and physical sciences related all the time. And so I wasn't able to get a lot of really good intros. And even at the time that I was, again, most of these individuals were like 40, 50 year old individuals who had full-time jobs with families and stuff. And they were not, committed to to coming on board to Detropel with no guarantees of anything and no pay right and so that always became a challenge and it was tough it, it was tough because i did want to hire co-founders but again like here's the challenge right Look, there are two things especially in my case that i was constantly looking for number one was, was looking for a co-founder who would take equity and pretty much no pay um well we couldn't afford it and that became a challenge in and of itself. But then also a secondary challenge, which many people don't actually think about is when I was looking for technical people, I made sure that their existing employment contracts at their current companies didn't prohibit them from working on our IP. Because if they're technically using company resources to start or build their company IP, or sorry, the company's IP for Detropel, then technically their current employer owns the IP. And that has happened in many cases. And so I was taught early on just to be careful about that kind of stuff. And it was just difficult to find people that, you know, that could, that could do that. It's not like people had a a lab in their basement, right? These people didn't have that. They had one lab and that was their, their work lab at their employers. And actually about that, um, has your age been, so sorry, it's a bit an intimate question, personal question, but I guess it might have played a role. Um, I think the US is very much more entrepreneurship than Europe, for example. But was your age a problem, I guess, to meet people who were a different age or had more experience that was one, but also to convince why people sometimes using your age to think you might be naive in a business? Or was it easy for you to convince them because you were so successful? Um, you know, I, I, I like this question because I often give an answer that I think um, most people don't expect, which is I think age can be both a positive and a negative. So it depends on how you use it as, as the individual yourself. In my case, I learned early on that age was going to help me get any of the help that I wanted because most people would be willing to help me for free, which is how I convinced all those R&D labs. I, we have like five or six different R&D labs do R&D work for us over the course of the first four years. And all, all of it was pretty much at the end of the day free because the contract's all pretty much said that, hey, I would be willing to pay for the IP as long as you can develop it. I don't have the money to pay for it in advance. So I need you to develop the technology first. I'm, you know, I'm 15 years old. And then we could we could 
pay you for the for the IP. Many of them agreed to that because I was younger and they were willing to help. Similarly, I think I, I got a lot of other help from mentors and so on and so forth, programs, whatever, because I was young. So age is, is very beneficial as long as, and this is where I think for most people, the negative can come in, but I'm going to offer a, a differing opinion that I think can be used as a positive. I think people find age to be a problem for them when they don't take themselves seriously enough. And what I mean by that is if, if you're a young entrepreneur, especially in high school, you know, you're 15, 16, 17, 18, even up until like 25 years old, right? You're still seen as a kid in many ways. And so the number one thing that you have to do as an entrepreneur, if you're interested in really, really getting older people's advice and, and succeeding from other people's wisdom that have already gone through it, is you have to show up and show out every time. And what I mean by that is every time, like I said, every time a new mentor came through the program, the first youth entrepreneurship program that I was part of, which was three times or two times a week, and there were new mentors almost every time, I took, and I did that program for three years afterward because I loved it so much after my first uh, few months. But I took every single, every single mentor's business card, whether I ever thought that they were going to be relevant or not. I took their business card and I followed up with them immediately after the session and just thanked them for being there and listening to us and offering an opinion. And being that, I, I suppose, gracious is the word, uh, but at the same time, that cognizant of you never know how your paths may cross or who that person may know that may be relevant to you is super, super important because years later, those are the same people that you can go back to and get your first investment from or whatever it may be, right? Those are the people that you can go to and build your network off of from the very beginning. And so I think ultimately, to me, what I realized was if I wanted to be taken serious, if I didn't want age to be a, a, a factor in, in my business career, I had to prove that I wasn't just a typical 15, 16, 17, 18 year old. I had to go above and beyond. I had to be mature. I had to follow up. I had to do what I said and said what I did. Like, I, you know, you mean what you say you, and you say what you mean. And so ultimately, that doesn't mean I didn't make mistakes, but ultimately, I think what it came down to was I didn't see myself as a typical 16-year-old and I didn't want to be taken as a typical 16-year-old. You had to work harder, but it was totally worth it. And actually, if you were, now that you have all this experience, you know, this expertise, what would you do differently? Like, what would you, what are the mistakes that you've learned? And if you you could talk to a 15-year-old self, you know, what would you say? There's one thing that always sticks out to me, and I've talked about this lately a lot. Um, it's about being vulnerable. I think if I would have been more honest about my R&D challenges, because that's the other component, right? In my programs, I refuse to really let people know what was actually going on with my R&D problems. And I think that held me back for a very long time because we struggled finding the right R&D expertise. And I wasn't willing to admit because whether it was an ego issue or I didn't want people to know that things were not all peachy or I, I don't know what the reason necessarily was other than the fact that I just, I wasn't totally honest or up, up front with the fact that I was struggling desperately on the R&D side. And so my mechanism against that was I was 
constantly in these accelerator programs, focusing on the business, the branding, the sales side, the marketing side of things. But I never, ever spoke about the R&D. I always said the R&D was taken care of. And that wasn't true until Shark Tank. And so I think being vulnerable and understanding that the more honest you are, not only with yourself, but with others, um, that's when people can truly be helpful to you. And so if I had to give myself or any other 15-year-old advice right away, it's, it's be vulnerable, kick the ego to the side, stop giving a crap about what people think about you in the way that you, know, you, you have to show off or, or, or say things that necessarily aren't true or just not mention things that are true that would be beneficial. Instead, focus on being honest about where you're at and getting the help. Be vulnerable and ask for the help early on. I suppose there must be a difficult balance when you have to, you're so young and you have to convince others that you know what you're doing and you want to do it well. And at the same time, you know, recognize your mistake that for your ego, that must be, wow, <laughs> that must be quite tough. It is. Um, and speaking of tough, uh, what was your toughest moment actually as a founder or entrepreneur? Um, oof, that's great. That's a great question. It's hard to... S- All every day. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say on the last answer too. I'm still making mistakes every day, right? So, um, no, I mean, look, being a harder is... I mean, being a founder is the hardest thing I think that you could possibly do. I don't recommend entrepreneurship to everyone. It, it, it's really not meant for everyone. Not everyone should go into entrepreneurship. Not everyone should start a business. It's the hardest thing in the world. It's the biggest dedication that you must have. You have to be willing to sacrifice anything and everything else or at least have your business as one of the top three priorities in your life. And so that's a very, very difficult conversation to be honest about. Um, I think ultimately the hardest like physical occurrence or like one event that happened in the company was going through our first lawsuit, which would, ha- which act- well, sorry, that, that was not actually our first lawsuit. It was our second one technically. Um, but it was the first one against us, which was from a former employee earlier this year. It was someone who we let go of and then they sued us pretty much for no reason. Like they just wanted more money. They wanted to extort the company for more money. And that was pretty much it. And they had no basis. They just got super lucky with timing. And so that particular moment was hard, not because of the lawsuit actually, but because I realized at the time that I lost track of my culture and the rest of my team, which was one of the reasons I had let that person go. Um, But that ultimately became a really big challenge for, for the business. Lawsuits, such an American thing. I must say, yeah. today's episode with you has been kind of a trip to the US. So far, we've been with actually European um, entrepreneurs, and you've brought a totally different perspective and challenges to it. I, I really love this. Thank you so much for being with us today, like uh, giving us your time. Uh, I can't wait to actually see more of you, uh, see more of your company. <laughs> Well done so far. Like really impressive. Keep keep the hard work. Uh, honestly, you're going to be on Mars soon. <laughs> well, at least I hope so. Um, and I don't know <laughs> if you have you. anything you'd recommend for other entrepreneurs. Any last words? Well, at least for the day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say, yeah, no, just absolutely find yourself a handful of mentors that you can go to on like a weekly or biweekly basis and be honest about all your issues and, and get the advice from someone who's been there before. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a have a wonderful day. Thank you so much again for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, this was Eleanor Pauli interviewing David Salahin from D-Travel. I hope you have learned as much as I did today, especially from the US side of things. And we look forward to welcoming you in episode eight. 
See you next time.